So you can go ahead and open up your Bibles to uh, the, the Gospel of Mark, and we're in chapter 1. We're in chapter 1, and uh, <coughs> we are walking in the footsteps of Jesus Christ along with the disciples, observing how they followed and observing what Christ has done in front of them. And so like I already mentioned, there is this call and there is this command on the disciples to follow Jesus. Remember Simon and Andrew and James and John, they were fishermen. And God called them, Jesus called them, and they left their nets immediately and they followed him, following this Jesus, this Lord, this Savior. And that same command is on our life today. That command has not changed. Jesus calls people to turn away from their lives, to turn away from everything that is distracting them, to turn away from sin, and to follow him in his footsteps, to become a disciple, to be a Christ follower. And so Jesus commanded us to follow him. And so we already seen this inside of the disciples' life. Uh, these disciples, they did not ponder the question. They left immediately. They did not say that I will do this later. I need to get my affairs in order first. They didn't say that's just for the professionals. They realized as ordinary people, God calls ordinary people to follow him and to be disciples. They left their nets. And, and if you know the history of these men, you know that they led extraordinary lives. These were ordinary men who were filled by the Spirit, following the footsteps of Jesus Christ, and extraordinary things came out of their life, right? The gospel went forth in power and even ended in tragedy for every one of them, dying for the sake of the gospel. And that is our call again today. So these men came to the call of the gospel with little knowledge, little skill, no experience, no experience as becoming fishers of men. No experience of being disciples of the gospel. They were just ordinary men. They were fishermen. And so as they followed Jesus Christ, they were students. That's what it means to be a disciple, to follow the teacher. They were amateurs. They were rookies. They were, as we would call in the oil and gas industry, they are greenhorns. We even put green helmets on some new guys that work in the oil and gas industry. They're greenhorns. Uh, but better yet, they are apprentices. When you look at what's going on here today, we're going to look at the angle of these men being apprentices and Jesus Christ being the master. So before we begin, I want to ask anybody here, is anybody here a journeyman in a trade or a master craftsman in some kind of a trade? Anybody? Just me? Okay, how about, uh, how about somebody who maybe is like a, a professional, like a doctor or something like that? I know we have some doctors here, okay, or we have some professionals. Okay, so in your experience, in, in your calling, in your life, in your everyday career, you have had to gone through some form of training. Uh, and in, in industry, in, in the trades industry, this is what we call an apprenticeship, right? You get a, you're an apprentice of a master, and, and these disciples, as we see today, they were apprentices of the master craftsman, the master leader, Jesus Christ. And so if you've ever been a part of an apprenticeship, you would know that when you are apprenticing a young apprentice, say if you're a journeyman, if you're a master craftsman, um, you have to be careful how you train them, right? You have to be careful with what you give them to start with, right? When you hire a newbie, uh, in the given trade, you need to train them. You don't just strap the tools on these guys and send them out. It's going to be dangerous for them, right? They're going to mess things up. You don't send them off to some safety-critical thing with, with no knowledge and no skills and no training. You need to train them. We need to assume that an apprentice doesn't really know anything yet, and they need to be trained. So instead of strapping the tools on them, what an apprentice needs most from the very beginning is to get as close as they can to the master and to begin to observe what he's doing and study how he works in order for them to learn. We're going to see that today here as well. 
So let's remember that these men were just ordinary men, Simon, Andrew, James, and John, the first disciples called by Jesus, and they were just beginning their apprenticeship as disciples. And what they needed most at this time was to study the ways of the master, studying the ways of the master. And so as we join them in their footsteps, you and I are also disciples of Jesus Christ. We need to study the way of the master. And we're going to start to see that today. And we're going to observe how he ministers in, in chapter 1, verses 29 to 39 of the Gospel of Mark. And as we study this, you and I are going to discover three vital aspects of Christ-modeled ministry. Three vital aspects of Christ-modeled ministry. These are, these, are, these are crucial characteristics of how Christ ministered that we can now directly apply to our life as disciples of Christ today. And so right off the bat, the first point is going to be this. We need to love compassionately. Jesus modeled such compassionate mercy. Verse 29. And immediately, immediately, Mark's favorite word, immediately, he, Jesus, left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. We need to love compassionately. Jesus modeled such compassionate mercy. And so as we start here, we see these four names mentioned. We see Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Well, Simon, Peter, these are the first four disciples, and they are named here. And so this is really crucial to understand that the reason that they're named is significant in this passage. In fact, when you look at this, you see that uh, Jesus is not named by name. It's just referred to in the pronoun he. Um, but these four disciples are named, so they are observing. They are observing what is going on here in Jesus' life. And so if you can remember from, from last week, Jesus, had, with his four disciples, came into the synagogue in the town of Capernaum. And instead of synagogue as usual, Jesus took his rightful place, his rightful position as teacher. And he began to teach, and all were astonished at what he taught. They were astonished at the authority in which he preached, not as the scribes. And he stirred up the people, and they were amazed. They were astonished at his teaching. And as he did that, he also stirred up the spiritual realm. When he preached, the kingdom of darkness was now being confronted with the kingdom of God. And all of a sudden, there was a demon that was dwelling within a man, and he couldn't take it any longer. And he identifies Jesus Christ in horrifying fear. Have you come to destroy us? He knows that his days are numbered. Evil's days are numbered because the king has arrived. And then Jesus began to teach, and he healed this man of this demon. The demon came out with great agony. And so as we see how this starts, Jesus starts his ministry with guns blazing. He comes out in full power, full divine authority, on full display. And the people were amazed, and then his spread fame throughout all 
his fame spread throughout all of Galilee. And so our text today is then a continuation of this. It's a continuation of his authority and power on display. Verse 29 here today says, Immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. And again, we see these brand new disciples all being mentioned together. And this is the first four of the twelve. Now, as we see these four names, let's try to strap on their sandals here for a minute. Try to imagine what it would have been like to be these four brand new disciples, specially called out by Jesus to join his team. Imagine how pumped and excited they would have been to to be in that synagogue that day. This Jesus who called us out, look at what he's doing, right? If If you had a friend, a really good friend who was in a sports team or somebody who's really good at music, whatever, and they're on the stage at a recital or you're at a big game and they, they get the winning goal or they're the best performance of the night, you stand up and you are excited for them. That is my man. That's my people, right? I know him. Imagine how excited these disciples would be in seeing what Jesus Christ has done. They would have been over the moon seeing their master's authority and power. They, amidst the crowd, they would have been the ones who would have been most excited. This Jesus, this Holy One of God, who casts out demons and preaches with authority, this Jesus has called me to be his disciple. It would have been overwhelming. And then they have to understand that they are now apprentices of this master. The point that he has them with him is to train them. And so with that in mind, let's remember that that we are here this morning and we are going to witness the training ground of Jesus Christ with these four disciples. And in that, we are also being trained as disciples as well. And so the text, going back to the text, the text says, immediately they leave the synagogue. Remember, the crowds are amazed. People, the news would be just be spreading like wildfire. And Jesus and this band of men with him end up going to Peter and Andrew's home. Verse 30 says, now Simon's mother-in-law, so just a little tidbit, yes, Simon Peter, he was married. He had a wife. And it actually mentions later in the New Testament that she would have been with him as well. Simon Peter was married. And so his mother-in-law, who lives in the home with him, lay ill with a fever. And immediately the disciples tell Jesus about her. So thinking about a fever, how many of us here this morning have ever had a fever? I think probably every one of us, 100% of us, have had a fever. When I have a fever, I am the biggest baby in our house. I don't know if you've seen that commercial where the man's laying in bed and uh, he's calling out to his wife, Pam, Pam, would you call my mom, right? That's me. When I'm sick, I am a big baby. I hate fevers. I hate the shakes. I hate the heat. I hate the back pain. I hate everything about having a fever. So as you think about your experience of a fever, start to think about Peter's mother-in-law here as well. Now, fevers happen for various reasons. They can happen because of infections. They can happen because of a virus. And although we don't really know the underlying reason for this mother-in-law's fever, we, we see that she is sick enough with a fever to be in bed. Even with a full house of guests, this mother who would, would probably never do that, she is sick enough to be in bed. She has an honored guest in her house, but yet she is in bed. She doesn't just grin and bear it. She has to stay in bed. In fact, Dr. Luke, in in his gospel, he says that she not only has a fever, she has a high fever. And high fevers can be scary, right? Especially with children. It can lead to seizures. And so Jesus hears about her, and he sees this lady, and he sees that she is sick. She is in pain. She is suffering in anguish because of this fever. And in that single moment, he reaches out to her, lifts up her hand, and pours out gracious love to her. Verse 31, he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. 
and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Friends, we know that sickness and disease and pain are a result of our sin, a result of the fall. We live in a fallen, sinful world. In fact, the youth, we were studying this this Friday night. We were studying the fall of humanity. And one of the outcomes of of our fall and our choice to, to sin has brought pain, has brought sickness, has brought disease. Friends, Jesus knows humanity. He was 100% God, 100% man. He, he felt the effects of living in a fallen world. And he knows that sin, in the beginning, created this. In our first parents, Adam and Eve, one of the curses on humanity is that we would have pain and sickness and disease and ultimately death. And one of the reasons that Jesus came to earth, the primary reason, was to conquer sin and death. And in that also disease and suffering and pain. And it all happened through his loving sacrifice of his life for us. And so his his coming sacrifice... As we, as we were just singing about his sacrifice, look at that sacrifice and see how drenched that sacrifice is in compassionate love. And how just in this little moment with this lady, we see God also pouring out compassionate love for her. You know, the famous scripture, everybody knows John three sixteen. God so loved the world, so loved the world that he sent his only son. This is overwhelming, gracious, passionate love for the suffering. And it spills forth from Jesus Christ as the Savior. He lifts her up. As he's lifting her up, you can also imagine uh, the the spiritual lesson being taught here as well. As he's lifting her up, healing of of a physical disease, that is also speaking of a greater reality. That Jesus has come not only to heal us of our physical issues, he came to heal us of our spiritual condition, which is salvation that can only come through him. He lifts her up, her fever leaves her, and it completely disappears. Friends, when, when Jesus heals, he heals completely. There's no partial healing with Jesus Christ. When he heals, he heals completely. And he heals her so lovingly and so completely that she pops out of bed and begins to serve them. That's how healed she was. Right? Even after you have a fever, you can be exhausted and you want to recover from that. Right? But we see this complete healing. She comes out of bed to a place of service of the people. So in this, this little bit of scripture, we can see such love for her on display, such gracious and merciful love of God to stoop down and to help one who is weak, one who is needy. Christ so graciously cares for us. He so mercifully loves you, even in the littlest of things. In this example, we see that as powerful and as kingly and as authoritative as he is that was just on display over the spiritual realm, he is also concerned with one person, with one struggle. This this powerful God-man who is the, the final authority, who is the creator, stoops down and touches and heals in such gracious love. That is your Savior. Friends, he loves you in the littlest things. Never think that you are bothering him with little things. He loves to deal with your little things. You're not bothering him. You're not bothering him with your struggles. He invites us to bring it all to him. He he welcomes it. He even commands us to do so. And this is open to all who seek him. All who desire to know him. 
He invites this to everyone who comes before him to receive him in faith. He invites all of us to be forever healed of our scars, of our sin, of our stain. He invites all of us to be changed. And then we see this next at the, as the evening goes on in Simon and Andrew's house. The text goes on to show us that that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick, all who were oppressed by demons. The whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases. And he cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Well, obviously, this news of, of what happened in the synagogue spread far and wide throughout the whole city. This exorcism of this demon and this teaching with such great authority. It went far and wide to the rest of the city. Remember, Capernaum at that time could have been a town of about 10,000 people. Even in a world without Twitter and Facebook, this, this news spread fast. And Mark records that all who were sick, all who were oppressed by demons, the whole city came to the door of the house of, of Peter. These words, all, whole, many. This, is, this should remind us back when, when John was baptizing in the wilderness. Remember, all of Judea and Jerusalem came out to be baptized by John in the, the river. Of course, there's some hyperbole being used here. It seemed like all of everybody in the area was coming. And they came in droves. And we see this at the door of Peter. They came in droves bringing all their sick, all their diseased, all their demon oppressed. By the hundreds, maybe even the thousands. This would have been massive. Now I want to let you into a little bit of uh, the life of a pastor a little bit. Um, I'm going to tell you, Sunday afternoons are, are my time that I am completely spent. I am completely exhausted. In my training, they would tell you, when you preach, this is going to be more work than you're going to experience in a 12-hour day. That's how exhausted you're going to be after you preach. Just to give you a little insight into that. And as I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking of Jesus who, who, who taught and preached in the synagogue that day. And he cast out a demon. And then he goes to this house of, of Simon and Andrew, heals this mother-in-law. And then they probably eat, and then after the sun goes down, there's a knock on the door, and hundreds, maybe thousands of people are standing at the door. He would have been completely exhausted. Remember, he is 100% God, but while he was here in human flesh, he was 100% man. He would have felt the effects of the fall of having a mortal body. So as I think about Jesus, him teaching, I, and I just imagine how exhausted he would have been. My heart would have wanted to run in that moment. It would have been too much. But that's the difference between Jesus and us. With Jesus, love, grace, mercy rules over self. It rules over exhaustion. It rules over my own desires. He would have been exhausted, but yet he was so full of compassionate love for his suffering creation that it motivated him to heal and to deliver everyone over and over and over again into the last person that evening. What compassionate love. Hours and hours. Healing. Delivering. He passionately cared for these suffering souls. And in that, you have to remember, there is four disciples watching this. They are observing every moment of this. They are witnessing it all. They are apprentices of this compassionate master. They would have been shocked with the rest of the world. But they were watching, they were observing, and they were learning the way of their master. Such authority, such power, but yet so much compassionate love. And so, friends, Jesus modeled such compassionate love, such compassionate mercy for the world. 
And so as you and I are disciples in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, walking with him, we need to observe this as well and apply this to our own lives. As apprentices of the master, we look to him. He is ahead of us. We follow him. We observe him. We watch him. We watch how he walks and we walk like him. We look to him. We see how he ministered, how he approached the mission. And we realize that we have a long way to go. We have so much to learn. So much more equipping to be had in our lives. But what we can see here on full display is that Christ modeled this mission full of compassionate love. Therefore, we must also love compassionately. As we look at the world around us, Sometimes we moan and we complain to the state of our world, right? We look at the darkness, we look at the despair, and we say, Jesus, would you come back already? We see the poverty, we see the pain, we see sickness, we see disease and struggle. We see darkness and torment all around us. We just look at the world and we look at our own lives and we see the fallenness of this creation. We see how pervasive and how deeply the curse has penetrated into this creation. And we can be prone to despair. We can be prone to anger. We can be prone to sadness. We can be prone to bitterness at the world, at the lost, at those who are suffering. Sometimes it's just too much. We lose hope. We say to ourselves, it's too much. I can't fix it. Get me out of here. And we forget that the mission of Christ demands love. That Jesus, our master, he loved so graciously, so mercifully, so compassionately, healing thousands And so we ask ourselves, do I love compassionately? Am I to exhaust myself like my Savior in love compassionately, being full of mercy, inviting the hurting into my life, inviting the suffering people into my life, inviting those who are stricken with disease, those who are suffering from oppression? Do I invite that into my life or do I reject it? The currency of Christ-like ministry is compassionate love for the lost. In the strength of Christ, we do this. Empowered by his spirit, convinced by God's word. And so we need to repent of our apathy. Repent of our lovelessness at times. And remember the grace of God that loved us first and have compassionate love for others. And so after these after these crowds subsided and it got dark and cold at night, Jesus here, we see that he would have lovingly and exhaustively healed and delivered many, rebuking demons, stopping them from testifying about them because they knew him. They know that he's God. They know that their day, his days are up. He doesn't need their testimony. And as we think about this, Jesus' human body would have been completely spent that evening. He would have been exhausted. He would have most likely gone to bed, collapsed into bed to sleep and to recuperate, right? And if Jesus was like me, the next morning, I wouldn't have wanted to go anywhere. I would have been slower than normal. I would have been sluggish, I would have been irritable, I would have been fuzzy-minded. The last thing I would want to do is to go and minister to anybody, or to go do anything. But again, thank the Lord, he is not like me, he is not like us. As compassionate love ruled his heart, his recovery needed more than sleep. He needed to be strengthened by close communion and abiding dependence with his Father in heaven. 
Verse 35, rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. First, it should just blow our minds that Jesus is praying. Jesus, the Lord of the universe, is praying. And even more than that, we see that he prays with such dependence, such fervency. And we're going to see this throughout his life. His life was marked by continual reliance and submission to the will of his Father through dependent prayer. So as the disciples, and as you and I would would be tempted to sleep in in the morning, our Lord, this master fisher of man, he, he gets up. He disciplines himself. Before the sun comes up, he leaves the warmth of that bed very early. And he gets away all by himself. Gets away from the streets of Capernaum, out of the sight of anyone else. And he goes to a desolate, secluded, wilderness type of place where nobody could find him. All for the purpose of deep, abiding, dependent communion with his Lord and Savior, with his Father. Which brings us to our second vital aspect of Christ's model ministry. Friends, we need to pray dependently. We need to pray dependently. Jesus modeled such deep dependence on prayer. Deep, abiding, dependent prayer marked his whole life. Everything that he did was pre-treated, preceded, and saturated with ongoing, expectant, fervent, powerful prayer. As we look forward to study more in his life, the Gospels testify that over and over again, we see this in his life. We see after he miraculously fed 5,000 people in Matthew chapter 14, verse 23, he prayed, verse 23, and after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. Also in Luke chapter 6, verses 12 to 13, before he called his 12 disciples. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night, he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12, whom he named apostles. And of course, our minds go forward to the Garden of Gethsemane at the end of his earthly life. As he began to receive that full weight of God's wrath for the sin of humanity, Jesus had to get away by himself and cry out to God in full dependence. Matthew chapter 26, 36. Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. We need to just think about this for a moment again. The Lord of the universe, the creator, God himself, in human flesh, the one who preached with such great authority, the one who cast out demons, the one who healed the sick, this man of such divine authoritative power needs prayer. And he depends on prayer. And he is so critically dependent on it that we see it throughout his whole life. So when we think about that, how much more does his disciples need to be praying? How much more do we need to be in prayer? Taking special time, going out by ourselves, going out where we cannot be bothered by the world and spend time communing with our Lord and Savior. Why do we think we can do anything apart from prayer? Jesus didn't do that. We need prayer constantly. We need to be dependent on it. Even as a church, especially as a church. Psalm 127, verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. We need the Lord to build this house. We need for him to be doing his work. We need to be going to him in prayer. As our church's mission is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission, as disciples... Those who are committed to following him, what we need in our personal lives and in our corporate life is deep dependence on prayer, following in the footsteps of Christ to an isolated place to pray to 
the Lord. So may we approach everything that we intend to do for the kingdom and in our own lives and go to our maker, seeking his kingdom first, seeking his ways first, seeking the power that only he can bring, asking him to do what only he can do. Dependent prayer. We're living in an age, I believe, of powerless prayer. E.M. Bounds says this, what the church needs today is not more better, is not more or better machinery, not new organizations or more novel methods, but men whom the Holy Spirit can use, men of prayer, men and women mighty in prayer. Now at this point in my sermon, I would usually ask you, how is your prayer life going? That's usually the next question, and that's a good question to be pondering. How is my prayer life going? But today, I feel that I need to change this to a call to our people, a call to our church, a call of repentance. A call of repentance to myself, a call of repentance to our church, a call of repentance to you. As I've studied this small passage of Jesus getting away to pray on his own, my heart has been deeply convicted. Deeply convicted. I'm not dependent enough on God in prayer. And I'm sure that's the same with many of you. As I think about prayer, I'm not as excited as I should be to go to the Lord in prayer. I'm not as enthusiastic about getting away and going to spend time with my Lord and Savior, abiding Him in close communion. Although I do pray regularly, I'm not praying like this. I'm not praying like Jesus. I'm not getting away enough. I'm not disciplining myself enough to get away and to have deep abiding joy in him. I'm not delighting in him enough. And so my question is, are you? If you're there, I, that's amazing. And I love that. Are you dependent enough on prayer? Are you trusting in your own abilities? Are you trusting in your own faculties, in your own strength? Are you trusting in your own power? when we don't have any power? So friends, this week, can we confess, can we repent, can we commit to a renewed dependence on Jesus Christ in prayer? Following in his footsteps, seeing what he did, being convicted by the Spirit that we need to commune more with the Lord in prayer. Seeking his will, seeking his way, seeking his power, Rejoicing in our Lord. And so actually next Sunday, we're going to be hearing more about this. We're going to have a Sunday focused more on prayer. Okay? So be ready for that. Next week, we're going to be learning about scripture-fed, spirit-led, worship-based prayer. So get ready for that. But until next week, let's take a, a moment of this coming week Commit to taking a moment to looking at what Jesus did here and go and spend some time on your, on your own, away from the distractions of this world and commune with the Lord in prayer. It might be in your car at lunchtime at work. Go to your car, close the door. You can spend time there in worship. Nobody's going to bother you. If you're a, a, a young mom and you have children at home, when it's nap time, Go take that time alone. Close the door of your bedroom and get on your knees and pray. Seek the Lord. It may mean that uh, some of us men need to set our clocks earlier. And get up earlier so we can have that time with the Lord before we go to work this week. We need to spend some guaranteed time alone with our Heavenly Father, communing with Him, being with Him, worshiping Him, pleading with Him to do what only He can do in the power that He only brings so that we can then follow in holy obedience and have a powerful ministry life. 
And then we're going to gather together next week, and we're going to talk more about this as well. And so we see with Jesus that he, he loved so compassionately. He prayed so dependently. And then in verses 36 to 38, we're going to see a, another vital aspect of Christ-modeled ministry, and it's this. We need to preach purposefully. We need to preach purposefully. Jesus modeled such priority of preaching. Verse 36, And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And how does Jesus answer them? He said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And so Simon here wakes up that morning, and he would have been uh, so confounded about what happened the day before, seeing such power and authority and this love on display in Jesus Christ. And he, he could see that the, the fame of Christ's name was being spread everywhere because of healing and deliverance, that many more would have traveled to Capernaum during the night. And Peter would have woke up to crowds of people again at that door. And as he would have heard the noise of the mob outside, the people outside, to his surprise, the man of the hour is not in the house. He's gone. And so he shoots out of bed and he gathers his other disciples. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. They looked for him everywhere. And finally, in a place that they would never suspect, there they find their Savior, their Lord, their Master, alone in prayer. And Peter is so pumped by what happened that night. And knowing that the crowds were there, he says, everyone is looking for you. Why are you here? What are you doing? There was a whole new crowd that needed to be healed. A whole new crowd that was obsessed by, or oppressed by demons. More people in desperate need of a touch of healing. Peter said, what are you doing, Jesus? Let's go. You've got work to do. We've got work to do, Lord. Everybody's looking for you. And Jesus responds, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. This is very significant. Friends, as much as Jesus loved so compassionately and he healed so powerfully, what he knew more than anything was that Temporary healing was not enough. Temporary deliverance from demons wasn't the main thing. This was all good, and it was full of love, but these people were not seeking him for his message. They weren't seeking him for his words. They were seeking him for what his hands could bring and what he could do for them. Jesus was not interested in physical healing as much as he was in spiritual healing. The physical was only temporary. Everyone who was healed and delivered by demons would eventually die. What he was interested in was what was eternal. Remember his message at the start of the Gospel of Mark. It was, repent and believe. Believe the Gospel. Friends, there, there are many within the church today who are, who are fascinated, who are fixated upon the physical healing of God. Friends, those are, there's those who are within the realm of Christianity. that They pour all of their focus and all of their energy on health, on wealth, on deliverance. And although God does heal, although God does deliver, they are missing the main point. That spiritual healing, by the message of God, the gospel is the main thing. That being raised from the dead spiritually by the power of the gospel is the main thing. 
that being delivered from the domain of darkness through the sharing of the powerful words of Christ is the main thing. Jesus said, this is why I came out. To preach, to herald, to proclaim the good news to everyone I can. That's why he came out. He's full of love, but he keeps the main thing, the main thing, and the main thing needs to be the disciples' main thing, and that main thing needs to be our main thing. We need to keep preaching the message with the highest priority. It must be our loftiest goal, because this is where the power is. The miraculous may look powerful, but this is where the power is. This is how people are saved. The, the Gospels record thousands of people following Jesus, and they were attracted to Jesus because of what he could physically do for them. But only a small number of these people actually become faithful disciples of Jesus Christ at the end of his life. In fact, so many sought him to heal and deliver, but often when Jesus opened his mouth to preach, they rejected him. People would walk away unchanged. Later in life, Jesus would talk about being the bread of life, that a true disciple must partake and feed upon him as their source of spiritual life. John 6, 53, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus here is teaching the gospel, that apart from receiving him alone for salvation, that there's no hope for the unbeliever. And then later we see in, in John 6, verse 66, it says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus opened his mouth and people rejected him. They were chasing him for what his hands could bring. But when he opened his mouth, they would walk away. Friends, there has never been a person throughout all of creation, throughout all of history, who was ever saved because of miraculous healing. There has never been anybody who has been saved because of spiritual deliverance, the deliverance of a demon. There has been never anybody saved because they were raised from the dead. The only way people come to spiritual healing, new life, salvation in Jesus Christ is through what? It's through the preaching of the gospel. Remember, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so what is paramount in our lives as faithful disciples is this message of salvation in Jesus Christ. It's not healing, it's not deliverance, but it's repentance and faith. Jesus kept this the main thing, and it needs to be our main thing. Our main thing to the ends of the earth. The text goes on to say, and he, he went out through all Galilee preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Preaching was first. Yes, he continued to heal. He was full of love, but preaching was primary. Preaching was paramount. This is why he came out. This was his purpose. And so as we think about that, and again, remember, these four disciples are watching. These four disciples are observing. They found him praying. This would have been totally opposite of what they thought. All these people need healing. They need to be delivered. Jesus says, no, we're going on to the next town. We're going to go preach the gospel. And that is our calling. Four disciples, four apprentices, observing and learning from their master. They were learning vital lessons for ministry. This model, this master, Jesus Christ, teaching them. They didn't have, they didn't have their feet wet yet. They weren't doing ministry yet. They were helping. They were observing. And so Jesus called you 
to observe him as well. Jesus called you to save you from your sin. Jesus called you to sanctify you. But he also called you to send you. We're going to see that in the future here with these disciples' lives. He calls his disciples to be saved, to be sanctified, to be sent. And that is us. We are called to be sent. We are, be, are called to spread this life-giving message to our family, to our friends, to, to strangers, to the world, to those who are held captive in the domain of darkness because of sin. You and I are called to go and share this good news. The world around us is dark. It is full of pain. It is full of evil. It is fallen. But God has given you, by his grace, he has given you his word. He has given you his gospel. He has given you his spirit. You have everything you need. You are fully equipped. You have the tools to follow in the footsteps and to share this with the world, and see people come to life for the glory of Jesus Christ. So love compassionately. Pray dependently. And preach purposefully. Let's pray. Father, we do, uh, we do receive your word Today, we thank you that your spirit opens our hearts and, and drives your word deep. We thank you that you do convict us of, of our idleness, of our slothfulness, of our love of self. Uh, Lord, as we look to you and how you walked, and as we, as we think about these four disciples who have walked before us, uh, we observe you. And we want to walk in your footsteps. We want to serve like you served. And Lord, we know that, uh, that we can't just be like Jesus. We can't just be like you in our own strength. We need the power of your Spirit within us to produce this in us. The power of your Spirit with the Word of God and the grace of God motivated by your gospel, loving with full compassion, being dependent on you in prayer for the power that only you can bring, and going and preaching with purpose. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We pray that you would use us for your glory, for your kingdom purposes today. Send us out of here changed. And may we be doers of the word and not hearers only. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.